Well, this is going to be uh, kind of a different kind of message for me this morning. I, I hope that it's something that um, instructs and gives you a little information and at the same time bolsters your, your faith and, and your confidence. And I want to start out with a question this morning. What would you do if you were sharing maybe a pretty well-known passage from the Bible with somebody, trying to encourage them or trying to lead them to Christ, and, and they turned to you and they said, well, you know, that, that passage that you're reading really isn't even a part of the Bible. What? No, it was, it was something that was added later on. Yeah, right. And, and, and what if you went home and did research to prove them wrong and you found out that they were right? What would you do? How would that affect you? Would it make you wonder at all about the Bible? Would it shake your faith maybe a little bit? I'm going to share a message that I've entitled God's Faithful Lamp. The Bible says God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. The scenario that I brought up is exactly the case with this next section in the book of John that we've been studying. So go ahead and turn to chapter 8. John chapter 8. Beginning at verse 2, we read this familiar account. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So unless you are reading from a King James Bible this morning, you will see, depending upon your translation, some kind of notation around this section. The most inclusive, I think, comes from the uh, New Revised Standard Version, which states this. It says, the most ancient authorities lack, chapter 7, verse 53, to chapter 8, verse 11. Other authorities add the passage here, or after chapter 7, verse 36, or after chapter 21, verse 25, or after Luke 21, verse 38, with variations of the text, some mark the passage as doubtful. Now, what in the world do we do with that? 
right? What, what, what do you mean? Well, it could be here, it could be here, it could be here, it could be even actually in another book. Or it might not be legitimate at all. I'm not here to teach a college course this morning, but let me talk to you a little bit about something called textual criticism. There's a word for you, textual criticism. It's important for us to have at least a little bit of knowledge here, if only for our own confidence in the Bibles that we rest so much of our life upon. Now these days, uh, when someone writes a book, it's written, it's edited into its final form, and then it's mass printed, right? Well, before the printing press came along in the 15th century, thanks to Gutenberg, um, ancient writings were copied by hand, right? The original is called the autograph, and the copies are called manuscripts. With me so far? Okay. Unfortunately, we have no autographs of the Bible. Nothing. Or for the works of Shakespeare, for that matter, just to give you kind of a uh, comparison. But we do have copies or manuscripts. Those who copied these manuscripts were called scribes. Okay, you've heard that word in the New Testament a lot, the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, the scribes were experts in the law because they spent their days copying, you know, making copies of this um, all the time. And yes, human beings are fallible, right? And that's why we have textual criticism. Now, we hear the word criticism, we think we're criticizing something, but that has nothing to do with that. It's a term given to the study of ancient manuscripts and writings, um, scholars comparing them with one another and with other sources, uh, such as where the text is, is quoted in other places, in order to put all that together and say, what is the correct original wording of this text? Not an easy job, right, to say the least. Um, perhaps allowing some room for error. Now, before you throw away the baby with the bathwater, in 1947, uh, a Bedouin shepherd looking for his lost sheep found himself in a small cave where he found some old leather parchments. After further excavations and studies by experts, we now have what are called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Anybody here of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Very important, important find in 1947. These manuscripts and fragments of manuscripts went through rigorous testing and dating, and they've been traced back to a group called the Essenes. Uh, you don't hear about them uh, in the scriptures because they they kind of set themselves apart, kind of like the Amish, but they said, you know what, this society that we're living in is corrupt. Uh, we're, we're just going to get away from all that. We're going to head out into the desert. We're going to be our own little group out here, and uh, we're, we're just going to wait for Messiah to come and take us all away because this is ridiculous. And, and that's what they did. But they spent their time, likewise, 
copying the scriptures, copying um, their own um, commentary and things like that. So this is um, this this is where we got those from. Um, now, before we had these scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest manuscripts that we had for the Old Testament went from about a thousand years after Christ. So think about that. That time span of a thousand years was the oldest uh, manuscripts that we had. And of course, you know, the originals of, of the Old Testament were long before Christ, right? Uh, yet, uh, Dr. Gleason Archer, in his textbook, A Survey of Old Testament Introduction, wrote this. He said, even though the two copies of Isaiah discovered in Qumran Cave 1 near the Dead Sea in 1947 were a thousand years earlier than the oldest dated manuscript previously known, they proved to be word for word identical with our standard Hebrew Bible in more than 95% of the text. The 5% variation consisted chiefly of obvious slips of the pen and variations in spelling. Now, I don't know about you, but when we were in kindergarten, we had this thing where somebody told somebody something and it went around the circle. And by the time it came back around, it was something totally different, right? Here you have a thousand year span of the, the, the different, you know, between the two and word for word, 95% with some obvious differences. That's the Old Testament. As far as the New Testament is concerned, um, the average number, when, when you look at um, ancient literature, Shakespeare, um, Plato, Aristotle, things like that, uh, the average number of manuscripts that we have for writings like that is maybe seven to 10. For the New Testament, we have over 5,500 manuscripts. Parts dating back to less than 100 years after Christ. Um, whole books from around AD 200 and almost the complete New Testament from around AD 250. Plus, there is a wealth of quotations from the early church fathers who wrote quoting sections of scripture. So, in short, the Bible is the best preserved text in the history of the human race. Sir Frederick Kenyon, uh, the noted British scholar of ancient languages, both biblical and classical, uh, wrote this in his book entitled Our Bible and the Ancient Manuscripts. He wrote, the Christian can take the whole Bible in his hand and say without fear or hesitation, that he holds in it the true word of God handed down without essential loss from generation to generation through the centuries. In other words, God in his infinite power and grace has seen to it that his word to us has been preserved through the ages despite imperfect people 
and whatever minor differences have been found between manuscripts, no doctrine of the church, none of our foundational beliefs have been affected. Both the Old and the New Testament scriptures have indeed um, stayed, they've stood the test of time. They have led people to eternal salvation and have positively and powerfully impacted the lives of people for centuries, which Karen alluded to just this morning, right? So, yeah, it's okay. It's okay. Um, As far as this particular section in John 8 is concerned, I love this story. I love it. Um, it's included in the King James uh, without, without notation. Uh, the King James Bible was taken from a particular set of manuscripts that they had in the 17th century. But since then, many older manuscripts of the New Testament have been found, which the more modern Bibles are, are translated from. So we have little differences there because, you know, the, the reasoning is older is better because it's closer to the original, right? So um, let, let's look at the, the text itself uh, as we're looking at this uh, account in, ch- in chapter 8. Um, first of all, in chapter 7, Jesus has gone to the feast in Jerusalem and he's, he's teaching in the temple. In chapter 7, verse 38, he says this, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Verse 39, John comments, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who had believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So here is Jesus teaching, and he raises his voice, and he says, Whoever believes in me, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John, from there, he, he cuts away to the crowd. Some are saying this about Jesus. Some are saying that about Jesus. And then, and then he cuts away again to the Pharisees and a conversation they had because they, they sent officers to arrest Jesus. And, and they come back and they say, where, where is he? I, we, we sent you to get him. He said, well, nobody has spoken like him. You know, he just wowed us. And so they're mad at these guys, right? And then in verse 53, um, it says, and they went each to their own house. And chapter 8, verse 1 says, but Jesus went, in, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Okay, so the crowd, everybody goes home. Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. And here is this interaction with the crowd and the woman caught in adultery. During this interaction, the crowd realizing that they are no better than the woman. They have sin of their own. They, they, you know, they don't have that place. Um, it says that they go away, beginning with the oldest, right? Till all that is left is Jesus and the woman, right? That's what it says. And he says, go and sin no more. And in verse 12, it says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Again, okay, meaning he had already given them one statement. Now he's making another statement to them. Well, where's the them? They all went away, right? 
So you, you can see, even as you look at this passage, that it flows from before the contested uh, plate to after, because he says to them one thing, and then again he says to them something else. So it's very easy just reading the text to say, yeah, if you took this out, it actually fits better because there's no them for Jesus to, you know, to talk to. Adding to that, and, and, you know, we could go on uh, a couple of weeks with this, but adding to that that many uh, renowned scholars uh, say that there is just no way to, to fit this in here. It's not, if you look at the Greek um, writing style and the words that are used in this passage, it doesn't fit the way John writes. It's different. So uh, we can be pretty certain that this was, in fact, an addition that was put in here. However, again, does it have any effect on anything? Does it change anything? Let's break it down. Okay, Here's the scribes and the Pharisees trying to trap Jesus in a situation to put him at odds, either with the Jewish law or with the people or with the Romans. Has this ever happened anywhere else in the Gospels? Yeah, <laughs> sure it did. Matthew or Mark 12, when they ask him whether they have to pay taxes to Caesar or not. They're trying to trap him. Matthew chapter 22, when they ask him which is the greatest commandment. So if he commits to one, we'll tell him, why are you saying that? Because, you know, this over here. And then in Luke 20, they try to paint him in the corner about the resurrection. Okay, they're always trying to trap Jesus in his words and, and try to get him to flub up. So this was a common occurrence. Nothing new here. Verse 11, okay, he, um, he doesn't condemn the woman caught in adultery. Was that new? Okay, no. Jesus didn't condemn the tax collectors and the prostitutes either, did he? He ate and drank with them. Uh, John 3.17, God did not send his son in the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So, anything new there? No. But he did say to her, go and sin no more, right? There was an expectation that encountering the love and the grace of God through him, that a life change was going to take place. Is that new? No. Peter, Zacchaeus, the woman at the well, Mary Magdalene, right? All encountered the love and grace of Jesus and their lives were changed. Go and sin no more, right? Matter of fact, uh, looking at the lame man for 38 years that we talked about in chapter 5, Jesus used those exact same words. See, you are well, sin no more, right? So do you see it this morning? All of these same principles are found in multiple places in the scriptures. It's all there's nothing new here. There's nothing that detracts here. There's nothing that challenges here. There's nothing that replaces here, right? So nothing contradicted. My best guess, and this is, this is not gospel, 
My best guess is even John, at the end of his gospel, which we'll see, he says this. If everything that Jesus said and did was written down, there wouldn't be enough books to print it all. Right? He made that statement. So my best guess is this was an account that was not in the original, that um, was passed down orally, you know, this story was passed down orally, and then somebody at that scribe that was uh, uh, translating said, you know, I think this is an important story, and I'm going to put it in here. And maybe he was led by the Lord to do that, maybe not. Um, Again, it's not gospel, but um, to me, I'd say probably happened. But we can't give it the same, because it's not in the earliest manuscripts, it's not... Uh, it, it, it clearly doesn't fit in John, so we can't give it the same uh, oomph, you know, that we do the rest of the scriptures. Uh, but again, the principles are the same. So it's not changing anything. So um, God has been faithful to preserve his truth for us and we can literally bet our lives on it. We can be confident in these Bibles that we hold, that uh, not only um, has God stepped in and said, I'm going to preserve this, just just as he stepped in with fallible prophets, right, And, and people, and the Holy Spirit came upon fallible people to write in the beginning, which they did, Um, God also saw to it that this word has been preserved for us. And I don't know about you, but the deeper that I get into the scriptures and the, the interaction that I have with God through them, you you know what I'm saying? He speaks through that word to my heart and, and it opens up. I mean, just like a microscope looking into my heart sometimes and, and all of that. It's like, this 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 can't be written by people. You know what I mean? It's just nobody could could do that. So there there is the the personal aspect of God and relationship that I see uh, in this book over and over and over again, and it has changed my life and continues to change my life. So uh, God is good. It is that lamp to our feet and that light to our path. As the late Dr. Norman Geisler, author and seminary uh, president, wrote, he says, the Bible that we hold in our hands today is a highly trustworthy copy of the original that came from the pens of the prophets and apostles. We can take that to the bank. So... I hope you've learned a little bit of something. Again, this is, you know, we could take, if this was a college class, we could take weeks and we could, we could have taken the Greek and, and looked at the whole thing. And, and uh, I think that's a little more than what you need. But I just wanted to, you know, take this section as we're reading along and say, okay, I got this note here. What do I do with it? And hopefully equip you uh, in your discussions with other people and give you that sense of confidence that you can trust 
that book that you hold in your hands. And God will use it to continue to bless your life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that somehow in all of this, you have given us a document that is life-altering. That you interpret it for us, Lord, that you use it to transform our lives, our, our minds and our hearts, and uh, continue, Lord, to do that for us, we pray. Thank you. Thank you so much for your word. Bless you. Praise you for it. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. And amen.